0: Psalm 40 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your laws within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly." Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God." All right, we're in Numbers 35, 1 through 8, and while I'm turning to that, I'm already there, but I'll say that Mark had to go home. He got bit by what we believe is a brown recluse a few days ago. Yeah, and so he is, no, not at the church. He got bit at home, but anyway, uh, you want to keep him in your prayers because uh, he's on antibiotics, and uh, you know, you never know with those things. They can cause real damage to you, so. All right, we're in 35, 1-8, the Levitical cities. This is entitled, A Prophecy Fulfilled. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. And you also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. The common land of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, on the south side two thousand cubits, on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits. The city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common land for the cities. Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to which a manslayer may flee, and to these you shall add forty-two cities. So all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be forty-eight. These you shall give with their common land. And the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many, from the smaller you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives." Before I begin, I'll say that uh, this is a bit of a complicated sermon on a 1 to 10. It's probably an 8, and so I don't expect you to remember everything you hear, but you'll hear it, and you'll get an understanding of what is being spoken of, and that's all you need, okay? And then secondly, this is the first of three sermons in this chapter, and they are all tied together. The third one will, I think, astonish you. I hope it does, because it astonished me as I was typing it, and I very, very rarely will tell anybody about what a sermon has detailed in it, and yet when I got to a certain part of it, the first thing I did was take that, and I emailed it to Sergio, and I said, look at this, and he was astonished. It really is wonderful. It's coming in the third sermon, at least to me. You might say, well, that didn't impress me at all, and I'm going to go take a nap now, but it didn't do that to me. I'm still excited, and it's been about eight weeks since I typed it, so there you go. The passage today is another step toward that final step where Israel will cross over Jordan and into their long-awaited inheritance. For the tribe of Levi, the inheritance is different than that of other tribes, and yet it is uniquely tied to the inheritance of the tribe of Simeon in one way, but it was vastly different from that of Simeon in all other ways. The Levites had a special charge laid upon them, which has been seen in great detail in the book of Leviticus, and even more so in the book of Numbers. Leviticus dealt mostly with one portion of that tribe, that of the Aaronic priesthood. Numbers has shown a remarkable amount of detail concerning the rest of Levi, such as why they were chosen, what that choosing meant to them and to all of Israel, and to the special nature of Levi in the presence of the Lord. Of this passage, the scholar Kyle says, Called out of the whole nation to be the peculiar possession of Jehovah, to watch over his covenant, and teach Israel his rights and his law, the Levites were to form and set forth among all the tribes the eklogi, the chosen is what that word means, of the nation of Jehovah's possession, and by their walk as well as by their calling to remind the Israelites continually of their own divine calling to foster and preserve the law and testimony of the Lord in Israel, and to awaken and spread the fear of God and piety among the tribes. Levi's selection out of Israel for this was for one reason, but the results of that selection actually fulfill another prophecy, which was pronounced upon Levi several centuries earlier. That prophecy which was spoken out by Jacob on his deathbed and which will be our closing verse today was spoken out based on what had happened many years earlier in the life of Jacob and his sons. That is our text verse today. It's Genesis 34, verse 25. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Simeon and Levi killed an entire city of men because one of them had defiled their sister Dinah. That story provides a marvelous picture of things which would occur much later in history during the church age, and it corresponds well to the tasks and duties of Levi under the law. However, the law is the law and grace is grace, and the two do not mix. Unfortunately for so many in the church, they cannot figure this out. They bear in them the same defect that man under law always bears, which is pride in self. Jesus Christ has come. He has fulfilled the law, and that law is now set aside in him. Those who continue to hold to the law of Moses are not pious, though they act that way. They are full of pride, and they mar the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. To them, what he did was insufficient to save them, and they can do better. This is a truth which is revealed time and time again in Scripture. But to understand this, one must understand the law itself and its purpose in redemptive history. Without that base of knowledge, our walk with God is not one of felicity, but one of enmity. Let us learn this by learning the law. We will continue to do so right now. It's all to be found in His superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through His word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just one long thought for you today. It is dispersed in Israel. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, This is the exact same opening formula for a passage word for word and letter for letter as was seen in Numbers 33:50. That was immediately after the detailed record of the travels of Israel from Egypt to this spot. With that record complete, the Lord gave the instructions for what to do when entering Canaan, including the division of the land by inheritance. After that, in chapter 34, the boundaries of the land were detailed, and that was then followed with the names of the leaders who were chosen to oversee that land division. Now, and in accord with that, the instructions for the Levitical cities are to be provided. It is the same order as for the counting of the divisions of Israel in the census, The main tribes were counted, and only then were the tribes of Levi counted. What is already understood is that the Levites were to receive no inheritance, meaning a division of land of their own within Israel. That goes back to Numbers chapter 18, where this was said, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion in your inheritance among the children of Israel. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance, for the. Tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said in them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. This note that Levi would have or receive no inheritance was repeated once again during the second census, as is recorded in Numbers 26, verse 62. There is a stress on this to show that Levi was dedicated to the Lord. There is the priestly class, which descended from Aaron, and then there are the other Levites who are given to act in a role which extended in two directions, to the priests for their assistance and to the people for their instruction in the things of the law. Understanding this, there is still a need for the Levites to have land set apart for them to live in. It would be unreasonable for them to live in tents around the sanctuary. With the people spread all over Israel, this would make their job of tending to the people impossible. For a person who needed instruction in a particular matter, it would mean stopping work and traveling on a long journey to simply get a resolution to a matter. There would be an immediate and ongoing void in the spiritual lives of the people, and that would result in an almost immediate turning of the people from the Lord. The wisdom of separating Levi from the other tribes has already been seen. The wisdom of of incorporating them among those same tribes from whom they have been separated is then seen. Levi is separate from Israel and divided as a tribe, and yet they are uniquely joined to Israel, but they remain united as Levites. If government service were a permanent occupation, God forbid, then it would be comparable to this. Suppose that all federal employees were designated as such forever throughout their generations. It would be impossible to run the government solely from Washington, D.C. And so, this group of people would be spread out among the states. They would receive their living from the taxes of the people, they would reside among them, and they would accomplish their duties both for the government and on behalf of the people. And so, they would be government workers separate from other Americans and divided as a group among the states, and yet they would be carefully joined to the Americans of given states, but they would remain united as government employees. Everybody's seeing the parallel. This is exactly what's happening here. Yes, now that sounds like a complete disaster, and it shows how things could very quickly get out of hand, despite being ingenious in its makeup for Israel and the best possible way of administering the law. It is a part of the law, nonetheless. It will not be long before this system's failings are revealed. The account of the Levite who became a priest to the family of Micah in Judges chapter 17 is a perfect example of how such a system could be easily abused. As the law is intended to point us to our need for Christ, that is inclusive of all of the failed actions of both priest and Levite, along with all other parts of the law. But make no mistake— It is not that the law is defective. It is that man is defective. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. As I have said, there is immense wisdom in how this law is structured and how it is purposed. It is not the fault of the law, but the fault of man's inability to adhere to the law, which brings about sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The account of Micah and the Levite in Judges 17 is one example of this in relation to what we will now be instructed on here in Numbers 35. If man were not sinful, the idea of a permanent class of government employees might be a great idea. But as we have seen in the United States, Anytime someone is too long in a government position, it simply doesn't work out. For some, 10 seconds in such a position is too long. Remember what happened? The moment, the very moment that Obama was inaugurated president concerning the White House website, within five seconds of his inauguration, perversion was splattered all over the White House website. Within five seconds, it was too long for them to be in power. Fallen man, especially fallen man without Jesus Christ, cannot be trusted with power and governmental authority. For now, Israel is on the verge of entering into their inheritance, and the situation of the Levites must be detailed next. And so, still in the plains of Moab, across from Jericho, Moses is instructed by the Lord to, verse 2, command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in. This is not a request, but a command. The children of Israel are given this command before entering Canaan with very specific detail because it is the 12 warring tribes that will go in to subdue the land. Levi is not a tribe of war. And so knowing in advance the wickedness of the human heart, the Lord anticipates what might otherwise occur. And he commands what is to be done for Levi. Otherwise, the tribes could say, we fought for and we earned the right to this land. And then it was divided by lot to us. For our inheritance, Levi can go find their own land to dwell in. Only then would the matter have to be brought to the Lord and then resolved. Further, if this was the case, it would not have been a specifically directed portion of the law received by Moses, and it would bear less weight in the minds of the people. The Lord knows this and is providing law in advance to ensure such wicked things will not arise in the hearts of the people. It is to be noted that the priests at this point are considered under the umbrella of Levi. In other words, both priest and the more common Levite are included in this command. Later, in 1 Samuel 22, there is a city called Nob, which is called the city of the priests, but that was a determination not specifically addressed under the law itself. For now, the Levites are to be given cities, despite not being a tribe of war. And further, these cities are to be, verse 2 continues, from the inheritance of their possession. This is specific and it is explicit. The land for the Levites is to be taken out of the individual inheritance of whatever tribe is designated. The Levites have no inheritance because their inheritance is the Lord, as has already been stated. Thus, these cities taken out of the individual inheritances must logically be thought of as the Lord's cities and reserved for his own tribe to live out their lives. They stand as the Lord's representatives among the people, and therefore these cities are the Lord's cities among the tribes. Like the tithes of Israel, so is the land. It is what comes from the inheritance of the people. As the ground of their land was won through their effort in battle, so the tithe from the ground was won by the efforts of their labor. A portion of each is granted for the Levites. Not to take the comparison too far— It is not unlike what is mandated by the Lord through Paul for the workers of the gospel. As Paul said to those in Galatia, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. A few years ago, or maybe last year, I cited that verse and I said, if you make good cookies, make sure you share some with the pastor, okay? That's Galatians 6 verse 6. And also those in Corinth, he said, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap material things? The things of the Lord are to be tended to by the people who serve the Lord, and in turn, Those who serve the Lord are to be tended to by the labors of those who receive instruction and guidance from them. For the people of Israel, this included, verse 2 continues, and you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. Here, for only the second time the word migrash, or common land, is seen. It comes from garash, meaning to drive out or cast away. The meaning then is lands that are outside of their cities. It is land reserved for the use of the Levites. From here, it will become a very common word in Scripture. Older translations use the word suburb to describe this land. A suburb is an outlying district of the city, but one which is designated for residential use. This is not what is being relayed to here. The Levites were to dwell inside the Levitical cities. As the Levites had no land inheritance, they were not workers of the fields. Rather, they were workers of the law and possibly other professional jobs, which may have arisen over time. But how did the Levites survive? It was by receiving what was provided to them by the law. This included the tithes of Israel according to the law of the tithes, which have been given already and which will be defined further in the book of Deuteronomy. Included in the tithes were animals. These animals would need to have a place to forage in Rome. And so these common lands were necessary for the livelihood of the Levites. It would make no sense to set apart one-tenth of the livestock every third year and give it to the Levites if they had no land on which to keep that livestock. This is then what is being referred to. It is common land for the use of the Levites who dwelt within the cities that they had been given. The Lord is preparing in advance for the care of the Levites and he is doing it in a very meticulous and specific way so that no argument could arise against their claims later. The explanation for this common land continues with verse 3, they shall have the cities to dwell in. This now specifically states what you have already heard. The cities are to be where the Levites were to live. This is how people lived in these times. There were homes built together inside of walls. This was to be for protection for the people, within from wild animals, from invasions and robbers and all of that kind of stuff. The cities had gates which would be closed at night and guards would normally be stationed at them. During the day, the gates are where the leaders and judges would gather. Often there would be recesses in the walls of the gates where people would sit in the shade. This is where legal matters of all sorts were normally decided. It should be noted that these cities were right within the confines of the land of whatever tribe they were assigned to. Further, there are times where a city is known as a Levitical city, and yet it is also a city of the tribe itself. We will see this, for example, in Joshua 14, that Hebron was given to Caleb for his faithfulness, and yet Hebron was also designated as a city of refuge in Joshua 20, and it was designated as a Levitical city under Aaron the priest in Joshua 21. The way that this is reconciled is by what it says in Joshua 21, verse 12, concerning the Levitical cities. Here's what it says. And they gave them Kiriath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah, with the common land surrounding it. But the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. Therefore, Hebron itself was designated as a Levitical city, including the land term common land as directed by the Lord. But that which extended beyond the common land of the city itself was the property of Caleb. As the Levites dwelt right in and among the Israelites, and as they both had families and possessions, it is easy to see that there was no such thing as a class of ascetics who lived by themselves from society, remained celibate, and shunned the normal life of comfort, wealth, and the like. Such an idea is foreign to the law of Moses. It shows that those who lived this type of life in Old Testament times, such as the Essenes and other sects, were not in any way mainstream. Rather, they deviated from normal sense of life outlined by the Lord through Moses. And the same is true with those who have gone off to live such lives in New Testament times as well. There is nothing in Scripture which teaches this type of life, and it is actually foreign to the notion of people living normal lives as described by Paul and the other writers of the epistles. Further, living such a monastic existence is actually opposed to the concept of the gospel, where we are to live in the world and to allow ourselves to be used as examples and guides to others who also need to hear the good news. I went to a monastery when I was in Israel. It was on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. We stopped at it and we walked around and guess what? Not one of the people that lived in that monastery came and told us about Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with biblical theology. Mr. Garrett, it's very nice to have you here. Welcome. The Levites lived in their own cities, but that was because of the precept that they had no inheritance, meaning no land to work. This was the appropriate way of keeping them as a part of Israel but a unique and separate part at the same time. Unfortunately, this mandated separation was taken to unintended extremes as is clearly evidenced by the parable of Jesus concerning the man who was waylaid on his trek from Jerusalem to Jericho. Here's what it says in Luke 10. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he... Passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It was never the intent for the separation of the tribe of Levi to include a perceived holiness that they were above the other commands of the law concerning such things. Again, the law itself is good and holy, but it is the heart of man which is unable to properly work within the confines of the law in order to bring about the expected result which the law calls for. Only Christ was able to meet the law's demands and then to set us free from those impossible confines. Thank God for Christ Jesus. Verse 3 continues, And their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for their animals. O shehem livhem tam ve lirkusham ulekho, chayatam, and their common land shall be for their cattle and their possessions and for all their life. Here, it speaks of the common land that we previously looked into. The reason for it is now stated. It seems like an easy set of words, but the meaning is actually highly debated. The idea of common land is set. It is said to be used here for three things. The first is for their behema. This is simply a beast in general, like cattle. The second word is unusual if it is to be translated as herds. It is recouche, and it means property or goods. It comes from a verb meaning to collect or gather. It very well could be, speaking of other types of animals, but what is more likely is that it refers to the things of any possession which might be left for the fields which would not be brought into a city, such as wagons and other movable possessions, stalls and pens for the livestock, and so on. The third thing described is literally, and for all their life. It could be referring to any other animals, but it also could be a phrase which speaks of whatever is needed to sustain them. As they received the tithes from Israel every third year, maybe the phrase included silos for grain, or it might include places for the children to go and play, and so on. Verse 4, The common land of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward, a thousand cubits all around. It gets very complicated from here. For the next couple of verses, I want you to know it took me several hours to get through. It's very complicated. Don't let your brain hurt. Just listen and absorb it, okay? As one could expect, there are various views on this. Some consider that the city would be deemed as a square and the measure would go out from the walls from that perspective. However, cities were more often than not irregular in shape. To not follow the shape of the city would fail to meet the expectations outlined here and lead to obvious disputes at some point. Remember the wickedness of the human heart. we got to get this right because if the city is odd-shaped, then it goes out this way instead of straight out, okay? The distance being 1,000 cubits is about one-third of a mile. If a cubit is 18 inches long, that would make it 0.284 of a mile. This is the area all the way around the city which would be considered common land. However, another problem, which is even more debated, results from the next words. Verse 5, and you shall measure outside the city. This is clear. The word is madad, and it means to measure. And you shall measure from outside the city. The sticky problem is, what does it mean from outside? Several suggestions have been made which will be considered. However, by doing that, the next words have to be looked at. Verse 5 continues, on the east side, 2,000 cubits. On the south side, 2,000 cubits. On the west side, 2,000 cubits. And on the north side, 2,000 cubits. This is understandable no matter which view is correct concerning the term outside the city. On each of the four directions, a measure of 2,000 cubits will be measured. Based on this measurement, whatever it may be, it then says, verse 5 continues, the city shall be in the middle. Again, there's nothing difficult here. The city is situated in the middle of the final measurement, which is taken from outside the city. But what is that measurement? We cannot be dogmatic about this because all dogs care about is where they can go play, not specifically how big the land is that they can play in. So here are several suggested possibilities. The first is that there is an error in the Hebrew. That's always the easiest, and a lot of people like that one. The Greek of both verse 4 and 5 say 2,000 cubits. It seems more likely that the Greek is an error in that, and it is a cheap way of resolving the matter. The second option is that if one measures out to the north, 1,000, and then measures out to the south, 1,000, there is a line that is 2,000 cubits long plus the length of the city on the east and west. Likewise, the same is true for the other two sides. And so, a city that is 1,000 cubits long would have a line that is 3,000 on that side. If the other wall is 500 feet long, then the measurement would be 2,500 feet. But the words say to measure 2,000 feet on the side. It doesn't say 1,000 plus the city plus 1,000. The third option is that because the term madad or measure is first used here, it is speaking of two different measurements. The first one is that of verse 4, which speaks of the common land of the city being 1,000 cubits out from the walls of the city. Now, verse 5 is saying to measure from that common land out another 2,000 cubits, making a total of 3,000 cubits, which would be a mile all the way around, okay? The logic is that the common land is the first 1,000 and that the fields of the city are beyond that. However, That view has its own problem, which is seen with the next words. Verse 5 continues, This shall belong to them as common land for the cities. The problem with the third view is that the same term, migrash, is used in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7. Why would the same term be used to describe land with two different purposes? I would suggest that the distance from the walls is 1,000 cubits, regardless of the shape of the city. The surveyors were to go directly out from the wall situated at each of the four points on the compass, 1,000 cubits from the wall. From that point, they were to measure 2,000 cubits, meaning 1,000 in each direction. You now have four lines of 2,000 cubits in length, which are not yet touching because the city takes up some amount of space, be it narrow or wide on each side. Once those lines are made, The gaps are simply filled in according to either the shortest route, if it was a flat plane, then it would make a square, or following a discernible trek along the ground. This makes sense because there is no fudging in the Hebrew, there is no addition or lesser ground that could be reasonably fought over, and also because the land in Israel is all over the place. If you've been to Israel, you know what I'm talking about. We're in Florida. Everything is flat, and you just measure things. There, you've got cliffs. You've got hills. You've got valleys. You've got rivers. You've got everything. The land is all over the place. To measure exact lines based on the irregular nature of the city walls and the irregular nature of the landscapes, in most cases, would be unreasonable. The four points of the compass have been explicitly stated to avoid any further complications of an otherwise difficult task for surveyors to easily and without bias portion out the land. Again, I'm not one to argue over this. It is complicated, and each view presents its own difficulties. However, the view that I presented appears most aligned with the intent of the mandate to use the four cardinal points on the compass to measure out land. You've got the city in the middle. Doesn't matter. What shape that city is, you just measure out from north, south, east, and west, 1,000 cubits, and then you fill in the distance to those four points that are measured, and that is it. Six, now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge. The words of this verse are widely translated, and yet they convey the same basic meaning for the most part. It literally reads, and the cities which you will give to the Levites, six cities, the refuge. By adding in the word among, like the New King James Version does here, which follows the King James Version, it assumes that the total number of Levitical cities is the main focus of the verse. It is not. These six cities of refuge are, and you're going to see that over the next two sermons. This concept was first referred to in Exodus 21 with these words, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. This verse now is the lead-in to the very next important and very detailed section, which encompasses verses 9 through 34. If your King James or New King James or any other version of the Bible includes the word among, you might make a note that that is incorrect. Here the miklot or refuge is introduced. It is a word which will be seen 20 times, but only two of them are outside of Numbers 35 and Joshua 20 and 21. The other two are in 1 Chronicles 6, which simply repeats the granting of the cities. The word mikloch comes from the word kalat, which is found only in Leviticus 22:23 and which surprisingly means stunted. In Leviticus, it was speaking of not offering anything that was stunted to the Lord for the fulfilling of a vow. The connection between the words is the idea that when one is in a place of refuge or asylum, they are taken in. Their lives are thus stunted from going out. The number six in scripture speaks of man. Specifically, it speaks of the imperfection of man. Often it speaks of man as destitute of God, without God, and thus meaning without Christ. The number here is purposeful. And the meaning of these cities of refuge will be carefully explained, revealing why six is the chosen number. It is one of these six cities, verse 6 continues, to which a manslayer may flee. Lanus shama ha-roseach, for fleeing there the manslayer. Here the word ratzach is used. It is the same word found in the sixth commandment, and it is normally translated as murder, It is not the same word harag, for example, which is found in Numbers 31, when Moses said for the soldiers to kill harag, all the women and boys of Midian. Surprisingly, it's not even the same word used when Cain killed Abel. The first time it was used was there in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Thus, it is a word defined by the law itself. As we'll be seeing next week, 20 of its 47 uses are in this chapter. Of these 20 times, it is alternatingly translated in English as manslayer or murderer based on the guilt or innocence of the offender. However, that's only English. Because the same word is used for both in the Hebrew, it carries an underlying thought that whether guilty or innocent, it was a form of unsanctioned taking of human life. The one who commits such an act has a place to flee to, which is designated right here even before the allotting of the full number of Levitical cities. The placement of these six cities will be seen in Joshua 20. Three each will be in land on both sides of the Jordan, but all six were well situated to allow a place of escape to all people. This is the exact same pattern that will be seen when the actual cities are appointed in the book of Joshua. First will be named the cities of refuge in chapter 20, and only then will the cities of the Levites be named in chapter 21. A very high importance is given to this concept of the cities of refuge. The reason for this is that even though these will be Levitical cities, they actually belong to the Lord for all the people in the sense that any Israelite could go there to live if the unfortunate circumstances which necessitated it were to occur. After appointing these six cities, Israel is next instructed, verse 6 continues, and to these you shall add 42 cities. This thought is secondary to the highly important designation of six cities of refuge. The Levitical cities are six plus 42, first and foremost. One could say that the United States was first 13 plus 37 added since then. Although they are equal, there is a special note of honor held among those first 13. Verse 7, so all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common land. In common math, 6 plus 42 equals 48. That would make 4 per tribe if they were evenly spaced that way, which they are not. Size of land grant varied, and the Levites would be dispersed in a way which would ensure they were properly placed throughout the land of Israel. However, the obvious immediate division of 48 by 12 is not to be missed. 12 signifies the perfection of government. 4 represents the number of material completeness. It is the world number, and especially the city number. Thus, in these cities, one can see a representation of the kingdom of God in the world, with a special focus on man, which is represented by these six cities of refuge. It is a rather marvelous picture of God working through Christ and forming a universal government highlighted by those who come to take refuge in him, is everybody starting to see what's coming throughout this chapter? Oh, it's marvelous. As far as the census of chapter 26, it showed a total number of Levite males from one month old and up being 23,000. Thus the number of males per city would average about 479. Add in females, and the number would be about a1,000 per city to start with. Joshua 21 will detail the names of these 48 Levitical cities. The Kohathites will be given 10 cities in Ephraim, Dan, and the western half of Manasseh. The Gershonites will have 13 cities in Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the eastern half of Manasseh. And the Merarites will have 12 cities in Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. And finally, the priests will have 13 cities in Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. What is interesting and which seems logical is that the 13 priestly cities are divided among the tribes which were nearest to where the sanctuary would eventually be in Jerusalem rather than where the tabernacle was originally kept up in Shiloh. One can see the hand of the Lord working things out ever so meticulously even in advance of the need for things to be the way they were. Isn't that amazing? These patterns keep coming up that are hidden in there, that God is dealing with everything in a way that when things happen, everything is prepared already. Verse eight, and the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe, you shall give many. From the smaller tribe, you shall give few. This was a directive which actually didn't come to pass as laid out, if it speaks of actual numbers of cities. They were all very closely dispersed in this manner. Judah and Simeon will be co-located within the same large area. They will provide nine Levitical cities. All of the rest of the tribes will each have four Levitical cities in their territory, except the last to be named, which is Naphtali, which will only have three. So all of them give approximately the same number. However, even if all gave the same basic number of cities, it could be that more Levites went to the more populated tribal inheritances although the Hebrew does not indicate this as an option. Otherwise, this would have to be considered a precept which was not carefully adhered to by Israel. This is then repeated with the final words of the day. Verse 8 finishes with, Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. Again, it refers to the number of cities in relation to the inheritance received. As the inheritances were based on lots first, and then by family size within the land allotted, the final division of the Levitical cities does not follow this precept as one would read it. However, the overall dispersion of the Levites was satisfactory to ensure that the job they were called to accomplish could, in fact, be accomplished if they handled their duties in the solemn manner which reflected the office. The eight verses today have provided great insights into the expectations for Levitical living in Israel and what the tribes of Israel were to do to ensure the Lord's intentions worked as they should for the people. If everything was conducted according to expectation, Israel would operate smoothly and in a state of high moral living. Unfortunately, the problem does not rest with the law and how it is laid out in order to serve the people. Rather, the problem with the precept here lies in the heart of man, who is constantly at war with what is morally proper. This is true with the commoner in Israel, all the way up to Israel's high priest. The failings of the people in opposition to the meticulously flawless nature of the law is what is highlighted. Something better was needed because the human under law simply cannot bear up. We have seen a few interesting patterns today and a few points of how things anticipate Christ. But there is a point which must be made before we finish, and it is a point which anticipates what we will look at next week and also in the third week of these sermons. The cities of refuge are given for the one who has committed ratzach, or murder. No distinction between accidental or intentional murder is made in the use of this word, except as it is qualified by other words. If one murders, he will be put to death or he will be granted asylum. How does that point to Christ? It is what James says in his epistle. Listen everybody, because this is all of us. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The fact is that by any sin, we have broken the entire law, including murder. But more directly, our sin necessitated the death of Christ. It is we who by our actions caused his death. Where can we flee to in such an instance? And what can be done about the terrible price that we must pay for our actions? The next two sermons will answer this for us. I beg you that if you are watching online right now, or if you're watching this on a YouTube video, you stay and you watch those and you understand what Christ did for us because this applies to every single one of us. Oh, I've never killed anybody. In short, this is the reason for Christ's coming. He is the Israelite without sin. He is the perfect firstborn. He is the great and sinless priest who conducts his duties flawlessly. And he is the embodiment and completion of the law which stood so proudly in opposition to man, Because of the sin that it highlights in him. Christ alone was able to bear that burden. And in him is a new and gentle yoke. In him the toil and labor are ended. And the rest which God promised his people is found. Thank God for Jesus Christ. If you're getting even a small taste of what's coming in this particular chapter. We are all guilty. We are all guilty. As I said, it's called the law of Moses. It doesn't matter what part of it. If you don't wear tzitzit on your garment that you're supposed to wear, you've broken the law. If you've mixed, you know, a goat and a mother's milk or whatever, all these weird, obscure passages that you read, if you've done any of them, you've broken the whole law. You might as well just have killed somebody in cold-blooded murder. It doesn't make any difference. It is a codified, unified whole, and we all stand guilty of the act of murder every single one of us. And where are we going to go to in that? I'll tell you right now, and then you'll get an explanation why I'm telling you in a couple of weeks. It's to Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled this law. He is the embodiment of this law. And Paul says that the law was nailed to the cross. Nobody went up and pulled a Martin Luther and nailed the 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg with the law of Moses. Nobody took a copy of the law and nailed it to the cross. The symbolism is that Christ embodies that law. He fulfilled that law and he died on the cross of Calvary and that law died with him if you were in Christ. But if you're not, you're being judged by this very same law which condemns because we've all broken one precept of it no matter how small. And so come to Christ and be freed from this giant burden, this yoke, which is so heavy. And he says, he'll offer you a gentle yoke, a gentle one which will last you for all of eternity. This is what he offers is his sinless perfection in exchange for your sin, your murder, your adultery. All of the things that you have done are placed on the person of Jesus Christ. And think it through logically, folks. Think it through logically. If this is true, and it is, there is no other path to salvation apart from Jesus Christ. It cannot be. It cannot be. There is one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. And the only way you are ever going to find that message out is through this word that he has given us. There's no other place that we can go. Why do we send people overseas as missionaries? Because those people are under condemnation. You're going to find out in a sermon that's coming up how responsible you are for that act. I'm telling you right now, the importance of sending out missionaries will be made manifest to you and you'll understand that wonderful stuff from a great god i'm almost in tears but i'm holding it back he's so good to us i said that we'd answer why it explains a prophecy fulfilled here's our closing verse simeon and levi are brothers this is on his deathbed jacob is blessing his 12 sons and he comes to his second and third son, Simeon and Levi. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Remember they killed a whole city of men because they had defiled the sister? Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and then their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them. In Israel and guess what we've seen a prophecy fulfilled today in the designation of the Levitical cities and I've already told you in this sermon you'll see it again when we get there that Simeon is incorporated into Judah and so they're scattered in the land of Judah they just kind of disappear into the people called the Jews and so we have a prophecy fulfilled in these two sons but here we go well isn't that wonderful that somebody says something a couple hundred years earlier and before they even get into the land of promise Here it is, fulfillment of the prophecy. This is the one marker that you can trust your salvation on. Is that God says I'm going to do something and then he does it and you know that he is God. Have I not told you the former things before they come to pass? Praise God, he has. He said he did and he has and then they come to pass. We got a group of people over in the Middle East right now that have confirmed his word. May 14th, 1948, God's word was confirmed. June 7th, 1967. God word was affirmed. It's wonderful. We have prophecy in our lives coming true. Wonderful. <laughs> Next week, Numbers 35, 9 through 21. The implications for this are huge. It's entitled A Place of Refuge. That'll be our 69th Number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a tough one for you today. If anybody gets this, I'm really gonna be happy for you. I'm gonna be very happy. This is a tough question. There is one person mentioned in the New Testament specifically named as a Levite, and it is not Matthew. His name is Matthew Levi. It does not mean he was a Levite. Can anyone name this person? It's not Paul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Somebody online knows this and they're yelling at their, their monitor right now. Anybody? Three, two, one. Okay. And Joseph, who is also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. I'm sorry. I had to do it. We're talking about Levi. I had to do it. I didn't think anybody would get it. I was kind of hoping the girl in the back row was going to speak up, and she didn't today. But she's got a brain that I had no idea existed. No offense. I mean, I, I just I, she keeps surprising me again and again with her her knowledge. But she didn't today, and it doesn't surprise me. I don't think I would have gotten that either. I really don't. But you know, I was looking for an answer, and before I. I went to get the answer, I searched the word Levi all the way through the New Testament to make sure that there was one or two or five, and there's just one. So there you go. Okay, I got a short poem and we'll be done. It's called The Levitical Cities, A Prophecy Fulfilled. And the Lord spoke to Moses words he was relaying in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying... Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in, please understand, from the inheritance of their possession, and you shall also give the Levites around the cities common land. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be, for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals, pay heed to these words from me. The common land of the cities, which you will give the Levites their common ground, shall extend from the wall of the city a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city, on the east side 2,000 cubits, so you shall do, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits too. The city shall be in the middle, so it shall be planned, this shall belong to them for the cities as common land. Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, so to you I tell to which a manslayer may flee, and to these you shall add forty-two cities as well. So all the cities you will give to the Levites, please understand, shall be forty-eight. These you shall give with their common land. And the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many, from the smaller you shall give a few. Follow the instructions well. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites as if handing out sheaves in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land, May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily, it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the redemption which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and for taking this immense burden off of our shoulders and giving us a light and gentle yoke, which we can just walk around with freedom and just know that we are yours and that we are being led by you and you have taken us to a place of rest. Now those who believe do enter that rest, your word says. And all of us who believe are in that rest right now, anticipating the final consummation of it, on some glorious day, and may that day be soon. Even if we don't get to finish these sermons, if you come for us today, and that'll be much better than listening to the answer to these sermons, because we will see the realization of them in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, it's in His beautiful and precious name that we pray these things. Amen. Math lesson on the uh, twelve. Oh, the oh! Isn't that marvelous? Six and. 48, 12, and 4. It, yeah. And it all matches exactly the way the Bible says. All right. Everything always matches. It always fits. It is. It's interesting. But it's even to me, it's more than it's astonishing because it just keeps saying the same things, even with completely different precepts and concepts. And mm-hmm. it keeps saying the same thing. It really is astonishing. But yeah, great math lesson today. Great math lesson. Okay. Um, I told you about Mark. Yes, I did. Okay.